most people want to do something. Most people give a damn. <laughs> Agreed. Right? Agreed. Most people give a damn. But we're all paralyzed by what if. Yep. Everyone is. Yep. But with that kind of nod and a wing from Edward gave me the strength to just say fuck it and dive in with both feet. And I never looked back. Hello, dear friends and damn givers. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara. And on this show, I have conversations with all kinds of amazing humans that have two things in common. They give a damn and they're striving to live meaningful lives. Thank you for hitting play. Thank you for showing up this week. I'm so very glad you're here. My guests this week, plural, are Tony Hillary, the founder of Harlem Grown, and the executive director of Harlem Grown, Nicole Engel. I spend a good chunk of my time talking to Tony because his story and work are fucking brilliant, but I added Nicole to the conversation because she's amazing, first of all, and because making great stuff is always the work of a team, and Tony and Nicole are like peanut butter and jelly, like Laurel and Hardy, they just go together. And for you youngins out there that have no idea who Laurel and Hardy are, go Google that shit. Your life will be changed. Harlem Grown is an independent, nonprofit organization whose mission is to inspire youth to lead healthy and ambitious lives through mentorship and hands-on education in urban farming, sustainability, and nutrition. They currently have 10 urban agriculture facilities ranging from soil-based farms, hydroponic greenhouses, and school gardens. They're tangibly helping thousands of New Yorkers by seeking food justice, providing education and mentorship, and providing healthy food and garden-based development programs to Harlem youth and adults alike. Not even two months ago, Tony and Harlem Grown were featured in Humans of New York. Brandon, the founder of Humans of New York, wandered onto one of their farms, loved it, talked to Tony, took a few pictures, and in the middle of August, everything changed for Harlem Grown. I'm so grateful to storytellers like Brandon at Humans of New York for the work they do, bringing stories that people would otherwise not hear about to a platform of tens of millions of people globally. And I'm also so grateful for and inspired by the Tonys of the world that will work for a decade with very little acclaim, doing the hard work day in and day out. They deserve for the Brandons to walk in on them, tell their story, and for their organization and work to be elevated just like what is happening to Harlem Grown right now. In this conversation, Tony and I, we talk about how Tony went from being a Prada suit wearing motherfucker, his words, not mine, that was overweight, working too much, never seeing his family, to being one of the most pivotal damn givers in all of New York. This is a story of humility, resilience, perseverance, and a massive vision for the good of the people of Harlem and beyond. I'm so thrilled to share this conversation with you today. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed having it. So much to learn from Tony and Nicole and their work at Harlem Grown. Before we jump in, a quick reminder that you can anytime and for any reason, email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com. You can ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show, anything really. I just love hearing from you. And right now, without further ado, let's get right into my conversation with amazing damn givers extraordinaire, Tony Hillary and Nicole Engel. Let's go. Hello, 
It's an absolute pleasure to have Tony Hillary here on the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Welcome, Tony. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. We uh, just had to we had to do a classic New York thing just now, which is roll with the punches, right? We were a few few streets away. There was a jackhammer noise. You know, I don't mind the the general ambiance, but the listeners would not have been okay with the jackhammer noise. So we came to what is the 127th? Yeah. 127th. I'm so thrilled to have you on the show and we'll invite Nicole on here in a little bit to join you in this conversation. But Tony, um, let's begin with uh, your life and this organization's life has had a lot of attention on it over the last couple months, right? As a result of a certain, uh, a certain uh, Brandon Stanton from Humans of New York sort of highlighting the work that you all have done. Let's begin with that. I want to get your story here in a second, but a lot of people did hear about you initially because of that. I was talking to a friend the other night and they were talking about upcoming podcast interviews that I'm doing and I mentioned that I was having you on and he knew right away, like you're a name that people know about now because of that story. So how did that happen? And uh, what has changed as a result in your life and in the life of Harlem Grown as a result of that? You know, that's a, a great start-off question. Um, I've been doing this for 10 years. This is the 10th year of doing Harlem Grown. And um, for 10 years, you're screaming at the top of your lungs of all the inequities and all of this disproportionate piling on on our most vulnerable. You're screaming at the top of your lungs and you're getting no ears hearing you, right? And then Brandon wandered into the farm on 134 where we just were one Sunday. I was sitting there reading the paper and he came in and asked me, could he look around? Could he take some pictures? And I said, sure. Then he started talking to me. I, I know people won't believe it, but I didn't hear of humans of New York. You know? Wow. Yeah. Um, I'm a little older, so social media and me are not too friendly. You not know? a bad I, thing. Yeah, I have, you know, I struggle with it. But, um, and then he told me who he was, what he did. And I'm, you know, I've been interviewed a million times. Anybody who knows me, you know, you Google my name, there's about 15 to 18 pages that pop up. Yep. Um, and I said, oh, just another interview. All right, fine, sure. And then, you know, he told me he's going to post it. He said, this is a lot of story. It's going to be three consecutive uh, posts. And, you know, Nicole knew about him. And we were talking about it. And... Um, I don't think you could ever prepare for something like that. Um, when I'm with Nicole, I'm fearless, right? Because she's got her fingers on all of this stuff, right? He posted it at 12 o'clock on a Sunday, right? Yep. Nicole's home, off. I'm home, off. And all of a sudden, our social media just starts blowing up. Yep. And I'm sitting there trying to answer all these comments. and we <laughs> Can't keep up. Oh, my God. It was just... It was just a lot. And then uh, Nicole and her infinite wisdom um, decided that we needed some help. So we hired a professional to come in and handle all the social media and the media requests because Nicole and I have a day-to-day -day job. Yeah. And that's Harlem Grown, not responding to all the social media attention. I mean, I love that. I love that you did not know who Brandon was because that might have even changed how you presented yourself, how you shared the story, right? Not, not, but not knowing 
that Brandon and Humans of New York represents tens of millions of people that anxiously await the next post, mm -hmm. right? This is a, this is a ravenous uh, cult of people that want to experience goodness and they want to, they want to know about people they're sick of hearing only about famous people in the tabloids and on social media, and they see the value in everybody having a story, mm -hmm. right? And um, I'm so glad that happened because that's how I found out about you. I would have found out about you eventually. We, we already talked about, like, now that we're on 127th, I'm five streets south of here. Mm -hmm. um, and we love Harlem. But I, it would have taken me a little bit longer to hear about what you all are doing. So I'm so thrilled that millions more people <laughs> know about the work that you and Nicole and this team are doing. And great point about the... the <laughs> 10 years of screaming at the top of your lungs, trying to get shit done in this city. And you've obviously done some stuff before Humans of New York and others that have, you know, raised the, the banner on your behalf and alongside you, but it's not easy. And that's something we're gonna get into here today is it's not easy when you give a damn, there's no such thing as an overnight success. And if you are an overnight success, it's probably gonna topple. It's probably gonna fall over. Mm -hmm. Most overnight successes, aren't truly overnight successes and they, they're the, the foundation by the very nature of it being overnight, it doesn't have a good foundation. It's going to fall. So you've built something over the last decade that hopefully with this newfound attention will continue to grow and do a lot of good stuff. Right? Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully. And you know, like you said, when Brandon came in, every interview I do, every potential new donor, Everybody even remotely interested who wants to meet, they meet me at 134th Street. Yeah. That's ground zero for Harlem Grown. That's where it all started. The story is right there. The school is right across the street. The community that we love and serve so diligently is right there in the center. That, that is ground zero. That's why we started there this morning, right before we had to move. So when Brandon came in, I'm like, oh, here's another one. You know, I've done thousands of those, yeah, thousands, right. literally thousands yeah, yeah. over 10 years, right? Some of them pan out, some of them don't. Um, but that's where we start every, every interview and every inquiry starts right there. So here's another guy. <laughs> that's the way I looked at it. I'm like, all right. I love uh, it. You know, but it was, it, the result was great. The result was great. So you have been giving a damn for, you know, more than a decade at this point, but it wasn't always that way. So let's let's begin earlier on in your story so that we can get to know Tony pre uh, Harlem grown pre. I mean, we're sitting amongst, you know, there's a there's a hydroponics farm right next to us, this double decker thing right next to us. And there's plants everywhere and, and vegetables and fruits. And it's really amazing. But that wasn't always Tony. So go back. In fact, I, I think I think I'm quoting this. I think I'm quoting this uh, correctly from the Humans of New York post. Did you say a Prada suit wearing motherfucker? Is yep. that what you said? Yep, that was so, me. So go back as far as you want to go, but tell us about who Tony was, even growing up, because again, now your life is so much about f food security and teaching people that they can take control of their health and their bodies and their mental health and all of that. But again, that wasn't always that way. You were sick. You were not living this like really full life. Go back before that when you were a kid how was growing up? How was your family? What did that look like? What was your relationship to food even growing up? Let's, let's uh, get that uh, part of the story and then we'll move on. Well, you know, 
I had a very um, comfortable, I would say, privileged childhood. My father was a Tuskegee Airman. I was oh, wow. born in Wiesbaden, Germany. I have seven brothers and sisters. We all went to private school and we summered in Sag Harbor, Long Island, every summer of our life. Um, never missed a meal. Life was great. Not bad. Um, and like most, I really had a very limited um, view of poverty. For me, most of my life, poverty was just having no money. You're broke, you're poor, right? That was basically it. And, um, you know, I had a very good childhood, but I'm the first in my family to drop out of high school and not go to college. So, of course, I'm the black sheep of the family. Uh, fell in love with drugs and alcohol in mid-teens. Um, I'm 35 years clean and dry right now. Um, Congrats. Yeah, and, you know, in hindsight, now looking back, all of those bad decisions I made seem like minor inconveniences in my life, sure. right? Now looking back. Right. But if you transpose that same life experience to a community like Harlem, you don't have the luxury of that because those same indiscretions become life-defining. That's who you are. Yep. You're branded every day for the rest of your life because anyone in this country who is successful has been surrounded by some degree of success in their life, right? There's no secret that right. the majority of wealth in this country is inherited. Yep. So is poverty. Yep. But if you're born into poverty, you're more apt to die in poverty than the other way around, right? And for me, um, living in the suburbs, looking into a community like this, it's so easy to have those knee-jerk anecdotal solutions for everything. Oh, just get a job. Oh, just eat healthy or just get an education. If it was that simple, we wouldn't have these issues, right? And this was all unknown to me until um, I came here. But back to my upbringing, um, because of that background I had, um, you can fail upwards in life, no matter what's going on. Um, you hit your bottom, you come to your senses, you have a leg to stand on. You know right from wrong, you have a network around you that you didn't know before, you know, your family, your community, your classmates from school, and you'll always be okay. And that was me. So I started businesses, each one got better than the next. And then I kind of struck gold with a limousine company. And um, you started it? Yeah, I started it. Well, I was working for a company um, and started as the last guy on the couch and um, pretty quickly learned behaviors. Yeah. Uh, the company I worked for catered to um, the rich and famous. Um, NBC was their biggest account. So all Saturday, the guests coming in Saturday yep. Night Live, late night with Conan O'Brien. They had all these shows and I soon became one of the most requested drivers that they had. So you see that, you know, rich and famous people, they don't want a car. They want a person, you 100%. know, confidentiality, um, comfortability and all of that stuff. Um, so that was me. And then after three years, I opened my own company and a lot of the clients came with me. And it was <laughs> very, very lucrative. Made a lot of money. Um, I have three kids. They're all young adults now. We lived in Queens. Um, so I bought a co-op up in Riverdale section of the Bronx. My kids all went to private school. Life was great. Um, it was, I was printing money at one point. But deep down inside, I was miserable. Um, you're making a lot of money, but you're never home. Yeah. 
you can't enjoy the fruits of your labor. Um, my kids' birthdays, graduations, I missed. Mm. Thanksgiving and Christmas is prime time oh, in yeah. that industry because New York City is the playground of the rich and famous. They come in for the holidays. They do all their shopping, and you got to be there. Like um, driving Miss Daisy, you're there with the happy face. And, um, and I mean, it's a very superficial existence. You're making a lot of money. You're, I was, and I was miserable. I'll be honest with you. Um, you driving <laughs> in the car, you eat bad, gain a lot of weight. Uh, at 42, I had high blood pressure. They put me on medication. The mm. year after, they threw in some Lipitor for high cholesterol. And um, I was chugging along, but then the financial crisis came and hit me like everybody else. Wow. And um, the banks cut my line of credit. I mean, this is not a cab or a Uber. You know, you can wait six, seven months to get paid. You need a line of credit to pay your salaries and health care and car notes, et cetera. And then I couldn't, um, at one point, they had a sign and drive program. You can walk into a Mercedes-Benz dealer and sign your name and drive out with a brand new car. But they tightened the credit restrictions with the financial crisis. They did away with that. So now I started losing clients, one after another. And um, I started sitting at home getting depressed. <laughs> and um, depression or any form of depression for a recovering addict alcoholic is danger man you know the personal pity party yeah, yeah that's how people fall off right so my wife would watch me with this spiral just sitting there playing video games all day from 7 a.m to 7 p.m never leaving the house and blah, all of that and um she said dude you gotta do something and for some reason i was fixated on these stories that you read about schools <laughs> And this is the irony here is that obviously I couldn't get out of school fast enough. I dropped out in yeah, 11th right. grade. <laughs> you were not interested in school. Right. I wasn't. But I could not believe in New York City, the richest city in the country, if not the world, yeah. that we would have schools like I was reading. Where I live, we have great schools. And I live 15 minutes from here. Yeah. So I could not wrap my head around what I was reading. I thought people were embellishing this. I thought it was all made up, you know, sensationalized. So one day I just was really feeling really down. So I really got up, got myself up and pushed myself out. And I got on the subway and I got off on 135th in Lenox. And I'm walking up um, 135th with no direction, no nothing. And there was a school right there, a half of block off of the subway and the kids were at recess and I'm like that was a eureka moment so I walked around the corner I said I'm here to see the principal she came out and said yes sir how can I help you I said I'm here to help and she said help with what and that's where I got stuck I never thought about it so I said I'm here to teach parents the importance of education to break the cycle of poverty hear me the high school dropout right recovering addict alcoholic Lipitor high blood pressure medicine I'm coming to teach people she said, really? Okay. She introduced me to the parent coordinator. He and I had a cup of coffee. He slaps me on the back and says, go get him, Tiger. And um, Was that because he, they were in desperate need of people like oh. you? Or, or he saw something in you and was like, this guy's onto something. Probably, I'm guessing the former. The former. They yeah. need people. Um, these schools are unlike anything that I was accustomed to. Um, you go into these schools where there was no services, um, mm. no art no gym yeah they cut all of that they stuff. cut everything um every kid in the school qualified for free breakfast and lunch 
in addition to their academics. And, you know, at some point, while all this is being thrown at you, you, you start questioning, like, where am I? Am I in New York City, in the United States of America? How is this okay? And I'm a curious guy. Um, I never said I was the smartest guy in the room, but I'm curious, and I ask a lot of questions. And when I found out that New York City housed 62,000 homeless children in New York City, that's when my head kind of exploded, right? Because what is a homeless child? We know what homelessness looks like. We see it all the time, but you never see a child. And it's like a dirty little secret, right? But then fast forward to today, there's 115,000 homeless children in New York City. And unfortunately, they're disproportionately placed in communities like this. We see when they want to put a shelter downtown because homelessness is everyone's burden. They yeah. want to put them yeah. downtown. Communities come out in mass and protest. They threaten lawsuits. Yep. So where do they end up? Here. Yep. South Bronx, Brooklyn. We know where they are. And it's not indicative of the community itself, but the community is being over overburdened for everybody else's not in my backyard mentality, right? So, okay, here we are. And I meet these kids in this school who look just like my kids. And this is the elementary school, pre-K to fifth. So you're talking five years old to 11 years old. And you look at these kids who look at me every day coming in like I'm some, like I'm the celebrity. I'm not promising anything. I'm not giving them anything. I just yeah. show up. And they're yeah. like, Mr. Tony. And they, rub and they run and hug you and don't let go. And I'm like, dude, I don't even get that in my house. When I come home, <laughs> Your kids. I'm a dick. I'm dad. <laughs> my kids are like, oh, here he is. Here, here yep. we go with this Dad's shit. Dad's home. But here, the complete opposite. And then I'm like, 40% of the kids in that school were homeless. And now in my head, I'm playing this game. Which one of these kids are homeless? And then you find out, you know, it's this one and that one and that one and that one. You're like, no. And digging a little deeper, found out that there were 14 homeless shelters in a four block radius of that one school, nine of which are domestic violence shelters. Goodness. And man, that's when your head explodes. Yeah. Right. Because you're looking at these kids and you know, we all know where they're going with no intervention. We, we've seen this movie so many times before. And um, I kind of bet on them that, no, that's not going to happen here. So I quit the parents and started focusing on the children. Now, because of the high poverty rate, all the kids go to school for breakfast and lunch. Mm -hmm. That's my ground zero, the lunchroom. So it's 400 kids in this school. So each lunch period, you have about... 150 to 200 kids per lunch period. Yep. So that's my wheelhouse now. So I'm in there. And now you see the diet. Um, and it's, it was pretty troubling. And I'd eat the same thing with them. Remember, I was a fat guy on medicine and all this. Yeah. And I'd yeah. eat the peanut butter and jelly because I didn't know what half the stuff was. And um, so one day I decided I'm going to go out and get something to eat. And I walked outside and I'm looking for something. And I counted over 50 fast food restaurants in a three block radius, sprinkling 29 pharmacies and not one affordable food option. So now. Holy shit. Yeah. So now here is where I am. Mostly all the kids are on food stamps. Yep. 
and here I am talking about just eat healthy, right? And I'm in here as unhealthy as anything. So that's how it all kind of started. And then there's these little group of kids who are like, to this day, 10 years later, I refer to them as my kids. There's a bunch of them. And um, we talk about everything. We talk about life, aspirations, um, family. We talk about everything. And one day we started talking about food. And kids in that school could not identify simple vegetables. They can give you the, the state, you know, carrots, of course, tomatoes, sure. apples, that kind of stuff. But beyond that? Beyond that, they don't know. It's, everything was, they call it salad. Anything green is salad, and they didn't eat anything green. They wouldn't even taste it. So as fate would have it, right across the street, there was a community garden that was abandoned, and the kids called it the haunted garden because it was overgrown, and all they saw were cats, rats, and scary old people going in and out. So I made some calls in between breakfast and lunch and um, called the city, found out it was indeed abandoned. They tell me how to set up a garden committee. I did, and they awarded me with the contract. And that... Is when my life changed yeah. drastically. Um, so I went in there. Um, it didn't go over too well because the people who were in there weren't too happy with someone else coming in. Um, but after some wrangling, you know, they, they left and left us with this big junkyard. It was full with living room furniture, appliances. There was even a car in there with a car engine being rebuilt. I don't know who was doing it, but. So now I had something else to do. So between breakfast and lunch, I'd go over there, start hauling out trash. The kids would watch me from the window across the street. So two days later, at dismissal, a lot of them came over and started helping me. Started pulling it out. Some of the neighbors started coming in hmm. and helping. I mean, it was like just a spontaneous thing, just something to do. And then it was all cleared out after about six weeks. And this little girl, Nevea, who's about as big as your pinky, with glasses as big as her face, looks up at me and says, why don't we plant something? And I think that was kind of the origins of the whole thing. And Amazing. What do they say? The rest is history. And um, those kids changed my life. You know, I, I wandered in here thinking I was going to change someone else's life, but it was the, the complete opposite. What was your, there's so much to pick apart in the last few minutes. What was your journey? So as you're coming face to face with, you know, you're in the lunchroom, uh, horrible food. You go outside, 50 fast food restaurants, 29 pharmacies, no good, no healthy food. What was your journey like to fix yourself, to mm -hmm. correct yourself so that you could be in a place? Because if you would have kept on living that life, well, your actions aren't matching up with your words and your words might be right. You could mm -hmm. be speaking truth, but people are looking and saying, that's not, that's not how you live. Right. So what was your journey uh, like to get from point A to point B being now I'm in a place where I can physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally lead this little movement that seems to be happening? Well, that's a great question because that's exactly what happened. I'm sitting in there and, you know, it didn't take me long to realize that I was the, the giant hypocrite, the most arrogant prick you ever met in your life walking in here with my entitlement trying to push my values on other people and their children. And that came to light very quickly um, because, I mean, these kids are mimicking everything I do. Yeah, I walk that way, they walk that way. I go there, they go there. And it was, uh, 
there's a responsibility that comes with that kind of thing, right? So now I'm, what am I going to use this newfound gift that I have? Yeah. What am I going to do? Let them mimic me eating fast food and all this. So I was always a concern of my health, but I was in a fast paced life where you really didn't, it didn't matter. You're in the middle of nowhere waiting outside the best restaurants or hotels in the city and you just grab stuff and you go back because yep. you got to be in there when they come out. That's not the case now. I have time. And I started going to the doctor uh, regularly and I started watching my blood levels and, and my cholesterol and my weight was ballooning. My ankles hurt. My knees hurt. So I said, let me change my diet. So I went vegetarian. And within a year, I watched my levels drop. Mm. I went vegan and they just bottomed out. Yep. I mean, here I am, 62 years old. I take a baby aspirin in the morning. I take nothing. And I feel great. Um, so you are what you eat. Yes. And I learned that by working with these children. And, um, and it didn't just stop with that. It was just my whole vision of what life is and my goals, my aspirations, what makes you happy. Because before... I was under the assumption it's money, it's things yeah. that make you happy until you meet these kids. And then that just goes away right away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, money obviously does, money and things bring a certain level to a, to a point of happiness. But the happiest people I've met traveling the world for the last 20 years are people that don't have anything, mm -hmm. like consistently, 100% of the time. And so uh, are you still a vegan? Yep. Okay. We but, are too, but, but I eat fish once in a while. Okay, yeah. So. so we're we're we were vegetarian for five years. Saw the the tremendous benefits all around. We're we're doing it equal parts, uh, for I would say equal parts for health, for animal cruelty, and for the climate. Right. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like it's just a big all encompassing issue, right? Um, and then we went vegan a, a year ago, and we have uh, maybe it's because it coincided with being in a pandemic and not being out and about where sickness is everywhere, but we've never felt healthier in our lives mm -hmm. and we're never going back. Like vegan is a, a tremendous lifestyle that is, first of all, it's the best time in ever to be vegan oh, because yeah. it's so easy. Absolutely. If in you want to cheat and yeah. like, you know, get a burger, you can have a burger that tasted as good as anything yep. you've ever eaten before. You want chicken strips, you right. know, right. you can get soul food chicken strips yeah. right here in Harlem is some right. of the right. best vegan soul food I've ever yeah, had in my life. That's right. It's amazing. Um, okay. So you're making these health changes in your life. You are now trying to live up to what you know is true and what you're telling these kids. Um, what was the next, but at that point you're clearing out the space and you're, you know, moving this car out and Nevaeh shows up and the kids show up and everything's happening. Was that Harlem grown yet? Or was that still just an idea? Was that still just a, I don't even know what I'm doing. I think I'm supposed to be doing something here. It, it was a weird time of my life because I was still driving and doing that. Yeah, at you the were same getting paid time. to clear out lots, right? Right. And so then, I'm driving, I'm running back in between jobs. And one day I'm driving Edward Norton to JFK. We're stuck in traffic at the Van Wick, surprise, like everybody all yeah, the time. Right. And I was talking to Edward about it. And Edward says, you know, it's pretty obvious because you keep, you seem, you know, like you're not here. You're somewhere else. I was like, yeah, I'm worried about the kids, what's going on, what they're eating and all this stuff. 
So Edward gave me some good advice. He said, dude, man, screw it. Go for it. Life's and too short, right? Yeah, go for it. And he said, um, if you're serious, you know, set up a 501c3 and I'll, I'll help you. And he's still on our board to this day. And, you know, most people that I met, similar to you, you travel a lot. I travel a lot telling my story of Harlem Grown. You meet people all over the place. Yeah. The majority of people are good. Most people want to do something. Most people give a damn. <laughs> Agreed. Right? Most Agreed. people give a damn. But we're all paralyzed by what if. Yep. Everyone is. Yep. But with that kind of nod and a wink from Edward gave me the strength to just say fuck it and dive in with both feet. And I never looked back. Um, we started a 501c3. Edward steered some funding to us. He narrated a documentary for Whole Foods called Apple Pickers. And in lieu of payment, he had them send us 25000 And that was our first money. But then again, I'm a guy off my couch with all this baggage, with a passion, um, determination, and grit. And that's how Harlem Grown started. And you can only go so far with those things, right? I completely agree that almost everyone, I fundamentally believe that people are good. When the bad shit shows up, right? It's a, it's a, it's a direct result of how we grew up, our parents, the lack thereof, the people around us, the mm -hmm. influences. But I believe we start out good. I mean, yep. kids, like I have three kids. You have kids. Do, mm -hmm. you, do you have kids, Nicole? Not yet. Not yet. But like, Yes, there are moments where you're like, oh, my God, I, why did I have, like, this is horrible. It's so hard. But I see through that so often, and I see goodness. I see, mm -hmm. I mean, my kids don't need to be taught. My kids, as young kids, just from being in school and us putting them in diverse settings, they're drawing, when they're drawing their photos, my kids are, I'm, I'm Latino, but they're white-ish. They're white. I don't see them drawing just white kids. Mm -hmm. They're drawing black kids and, and white kids playing together and doing stuff. Mm -hmm. All their, the, the scenes they were drawing, it was all kinds of people. They didn't question when they went to school and there were little girls, you know, with hijabs on. That wasn't, a, they weren't like, oh, that's weird. Like, right. why is she wearing that? It was just, oh, this is who she is, mm -hmm. right? So we're, we're, we're taught to hate. We're taught racism. Yep. We're taught bad habits. We're taught, it's, and, and in a place like this, a lot of those things, are, there aren't options for parents, but we're still taught. Just eat whatever you can find. That's really cheap. They have a dollar menu. We can get a lot of food there. Mm -hmm. We're on food stamps. That's where we're eating, right? But that is a taught thing. And so I completely agree that people are good. They want to give a damn. And they, there's a lot of things at play here. But one of the things that you mentioned is they just need someone to lead the way. Yep. They need someone to take away their what if. Because yep. everybody's asking what if. Think about how many problems. Sometimes I get so overwhelmed. And I literally, not paralyzing because I'm a doer. But I do get so overwhelmed thinking that within a stone's throw of where we're sitting right now in 127th, uh, a kid is getting abused. Mm -hmm. so, a wife is getting hit. Someone doesn't have what the, all that they need. Someone doesn't have most of what they need. Uh, there is unhealth. There is chronic unhealth. Like, when you think about that, we're in one little, yes, New York's the greatest city in the world, but we're in one little pocket of this city, 
in one state, in one country of the 200 countries in the world. Like there's so much to do. It can be paralyzing and it takes Tony showing up to a lot with cars and engines and trash and shit everywhere for the kids to say, oh, for, I mean, if you wouldn't have shown up at that time, would Nevea have come up and said that and participated and, you know, helped launch this story as it is, right? So we're, we're looking for people that do. And it seems like you're a doer. Naturally, and then, all, uh, then sometimes we need the Edward Nortons in our life. For most people, it won't be Edward Norton. Mm -hmm. We need the, that person to say, well, it's, you're not here physically. You're not here, or you're here physically. You're not here uh, uh, mentally. Just go do it, dude. Right? Right. 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 And that's, that's exactly right. And you see it in Harlem Grown right now. If you look at our staff, we have the most diverse staff you've ever seen. We come from all over the place. Look right here. We're all here for the same reason. Yeah. And at the essence of all of that, at the center of all of that is doing good, changing things, seeing a wrong and rolling up your sleeve and trying to change it. That's hard, it's hard work. I mean, I can't, so many times you go home and you cry on your pillow. Oh yeah. Right? Um, but then you come to work the next day and you see the literal fruits of your labor in these children. So you were talking about your kids. Come to Harlem Grown on a weekend. I will. We have I will. affordable housing behind me, yep. $4 million brownstones across the street, yep. and the largest domestic violence shelter in Central Harlem on the next block. Any weekend, you have all those children in here playing, and I defy anyone to stand there and point out what child comes from where. The innocence of childhood is unbelievable. They walk in, hi, I'm Tony. Hi, I'm Nicole. You want to be my friend? Sure. That's, Mom, this is my best friend. They met two yes. minutes ago. Right, but when does that change? When does that change? We see it in this community, third grade, fourth grade. Life is hard in communities like this. Um, poverty is like a stack of pancakes. It's one issue piled on top of another, mm. another, another. It's not just not having money. The system is designed to almost keep people in this position. And I found it, <laughs> I still find it very unnerving and like a personal affront to my work. And 10 years ago, I was like a man on fire running around here yelling at everyone who would listen, politicians. Oh, oh my God. I mean, this is, <laughs> I didn't understand. I'm not politically savvy. I'm just a man on a mission. And um, I've learned since sure. how to play the game, but. The game, the winners are obvious, but the loser are always these children and their yep. families, yep. right? And that still bothers me 10 years later, but when you look at it from that level, you start to question your work. So we just try to look at our successes on the ground and we focus on the ground. And um, you never lose like that. You know, you never lose like that. Because like Nevaeh right now is a sophomore at a private school downtown on the deans, on the honor roll. Um, we have so many kids in four-year universities through this program. We have one in NYU through this program doing great. Now, you know, that's how you break this cycle that's of poverty. That's how you break it. Right? And they're going to be the new advocates for themselves and their communities, right? And that's what we're trying to grow here. Don't let the fruits and vegetables fool you. That's what we plant. We grow people. 
fucking love that. That's amazing. Yeah, this is a tool. Yeah. And it's a great tool. It is. Because it's fruits and vegetables and it's health. Mm -hmm. It's health in its very essence. But where, where did you, at what point in your journey did you learn if you can pinpoint it? So what you just said is very important. Nevaeh is a sophomore at a private school downtown. You've got kids at NYU. You've got kids at four-year universities, a direct result of the work that went on in these farms that are around mm -hmm. Harlem. But in the day-to-day, -day, this is where we lose a lot of people that want to give a damn. The energy is there. The, uh, des the desire is there. The passion is there. I want to make a difference. I want to use who I am and the money I make and the resources I have to make a difference. And you put them into something and you see them, they drop off after a month, after three months, after six months, because it's super fucking hard <laughs> and we don't know when the end game is. Right. You don't invest in Nevaeh knowing she's going to end up at a private school downtown. You don't know. Who knows what's going to happen? These kids at NYU now, like who knows? It could have gone very badly for them. So you have to have this like resilience, this persistence in this long view, frankly, because human being a human is messy mm -hmm. and we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone an hour from now. So you've got to have this energy that is uh, 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 very long lasting. Right. So where did that happen for Tony? At what point in the mm -hmm. story? I mean, I'm, I'm not saying you're not still learning it. I'm still learning it. I'm very much a delayed gratification person, long view in mind. And it's still hard because we want things to happen now, right? Like never mm -hmm. before in history can we open our these little devices here. I'm holding in my hand, you know, a hundred times the computing power that put the first, you know, that first put that first monkey on the moon, you know, decades ago. And I can get anywhere right now. I can, mm -hmm. I can look, we, we, it's, we're in such this fast paced, culture but that's not how people grow right that's not how people evolve so where did that happen for you well it's twofold um first when i was doing my limousine business i was making millions of dollars and i remember every year going to my accountant and they'd have remember the books of checks with the oh, pages yeah. of checks yep, they'd yep. have a bunch of them out yep. like 10 checks and a list of nonprofit. some of them circle that they think i should donate to and I used to sit there like a ceremony every year for tax purposes. And I'd write these checks and I'd pat myself on the back as I walk out. Look what you just did. I did nothing. I did nothing. I didn't even know half of the, the, the causes I was supporting. Yeah. Right? Um, but that was for me to feel good about doing something. That wasn't for the causes. So when I came here and you meet these kids, it's personal. When I told you they changed my life, I'm not, I'm not bullshitting. I mean, yeah. they made me revalue re, re everything that I thought was important mm. because I thought it was the things. They had no things, and they were so happy just to come out here and play in the dirt, walk in the grass, look at, look at clouds. Bring your kids outside and look at clouds. And how long do you think it will be until they tell you, I'm bored. I got to get out of here. And these kids will sit here for six hours and then tell you at the end of the day, today was the best day of my life ever. Yeah. Dude, who doesn't want that? So now it's the long game, right? And this goes to a lot of donors. I mean, humans of New York, man, it's crowdsourcing, yes. People feel good in that moment. And you have this notion to send some money. Then it's on to the next story. And then the next story. Mm. 
And that's part of our secret sauce here because corporations, we are a very, very compelling story. We all know corporations have to spend money. Yep. Corporate responsibility is yep. all the rage. They come up here waving checks all the time. It'd be very easy for me to take that check, but it's doing more for them than it does for us. Mm. The kids don't know where this money came from. Is this new gloves, new tools? Maybe we do a field trip or everything. They don't know what's behind that. But on the other side, downtown, in their corporate report every year, they have all the things they support. Harlem Grown, one check. Inner city youth, homelessness, sustainability, hunger, education. Boom, one check. You check a lot of boxes. So we insist that before we take money, they send their employees up here to work with our kids on the mm. farm and in the schools. And then in our summer, summer camp, we have a seven-week summer camp. Every Tuesday and Thursday are field trips. We take them downtown to the boardrooms of these organizations that give us their volunteers. So now they go down there and see you, who they get dirty with on Saturday. But now you're in a corner office with a suit and a team of 100 people working with you. They say, hmm, I want to be like that. Because... What we have here is just lack of access and lack of opportunity. That's what creates inner cities, not lack of intellect, not lack of ingenuity. I mean, inner cities create so much art, music, culture is born in inner cities because it's the most resilient communities there are, right? You take nothing and create something. Yeah. Normal people can't do that. Right. You don't have the you don't have the will to do that. Right. So that's our secret sauce, man. We play the long game here. It's the long game. The short game is good for me. Sure. If you are looking to broadcast. Yeah. You can um, build a brand. Yeah. You can. Yeah. You, yep. you can do all that. It's great for the corporation. Mm -hmm. it's, I mean, it's better for them. But again, what about the children? What are they getting out of this whole deal? Because now I get my kids internships and fellowships in these same corporations, right? That's the track we need to get them out of this, right? So the long game, man. Everybody has a passion. There's something that bugs is up everybody's ass. Right now, listening to this thing. Yep. Something somewhere in your own neighborhood, your own community is bothering the shit out of you. And you're always waiting for someone to do something about it. But you're the someone. You're the someone. Yeah. God. Okay. Let's do this. There's so much there. Uh, Nicole, let's switch over to you for a bit. We'll give, we'll give Tony, Tony a break. Okay. Sounds good. Um, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So happy to be here. Um, you are, as we were driving over here, because we were at 134th, came over here, uh, and, and at, well, ever since you showed up an hour ago, Tony has been profusely you know, uh, 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 doting on you with or, you know, just talking about how much you mean to this organization. You're a recent addition, right, to this organization? Yes, I joined in June as the new executive director. Amazing. And we'll get to that. You obviously play a really pivotal role here at Harlem Grown. But before we do that, you just came on the mic. Uh, you have not been in the spotlight like Tony has, right? Because this is his, like, baby for the last 10, 11 years. Talk about your... A little bit about your story, because sure. again, before we get to your work, I want to know where you're coming from. How did you get to this point in life where you are making the choice to join a team like this, to do this kind of work? It's not easy. 
very hard. And again, long kind of long game, long term thinking is involved in making this happen. So uh, in as few or as many words as you want, what's your story? Where do you come from? How did you get here? It's a great question. I think um, Tony and I really connect because we have a really similar story that it starts, frankly, with privilege. Um, I, I grew up in New Jersey, very close to here, and I went to public school. And my perspective was I got a public school education. I didn't understand the varying degrees of what that meant. Sure. Ended up in college in um, West Philadelphia and was always passionate about education, started working in public schools in West Philadelphia and was like, what the fuck? This is not the type of school I went to. Yeah. This is not the same thing. Got really angry, didn't understand and wanted to learn more. I spent, you know, my early years getting a degree in education, working in schools, and I started my career as a teacher. I taught on 127th Street, two blocks away from where we're at right now, um, and really began to see that, you know, your zip code dictates the education you receive in this country, and that's not fair, yeah. quite frankly. Yeah. So I went back to school, got a master's in education, was trying to figure out like how to give a damn, you know, I was teaching, but it wasn't, it wasn't my strength. And, um, I ended up in school administration. Um, I worked for a network of schools three blocks away from here. I believe your children go to the school I worked at. Yes. A great coincidence. (laughs) Um, and, um, got really passionate about the community that I've been serving here in Harlem and the children and figuring out, you know, how do you even this playing field? That's just so not even. Um, and I think, you know, there was an easy answer. We'd have solved this problem by now and there's not. And, you know, I spent my professional career in school serving Mm. children and I hit this point where I felt like I was on this hamster wheel where every year was Groundhog's Day. I started the year again and you have, you know, there's, there's good things happening, really good things happening around here. But they're not changing the overall issues in, in this city, in this small part of this city. Right. Um, I got an email about this opportunity and I... I told my husband, um, I, I'm not going to take this job. I'm just, you know, I'm just going to go talk to them. Why not? Yeah. I came back from meeting uh, this guy over here, Tony. Looked to my husband. I said, I think I'm going to take this job. Amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a compelling story. It's, it is looking at the same problem that I've been looking at for my entire professional career, but from an entirely different perspective and angle. And it was that fresh perspective that I felt like I needed in my life. Did you, um, had you heard about Harlem Grown before the email? That's the crazy part. I worked two blocks away and I had never heard. These farms are everywhere, right? They're all around. I had, the entire time this organization has been in existence, I've been working in Harlem and I had never heard of this organization. And that was like the biggest travesty to me. Yeah. This place is doing such amazing things. Why hadn't I heard about it? And if I hadn't heard about it, that was a problem. And that's really what compelled me to take this job. I wanted to help amplify the work, the good work that was already being done. I mean, this organization did not need me to do good work. 
but it needed me to help make sure other people knew about it because people don't. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back in your story a little bit. I thought that I found that very interesting. So you're, you're, you grew up in New Jersey, had a public public school education there, which great point, great thing to point out that Tony did in one way, but you're pointing it out in a different way that you can't, it's not just simple enough to say, oh, I went to public school. That doesn't mean any one thing. Right. Right. Because you go to a public school where you grew up or in Palo Alto, you know, in Silicon Valley or in, you know, whatever, Highland Park in L.A., nice neighborhood. It can mean something totally different yeah. because they're getting more funding. They're able to pay teachers in a different way. Uh, the teachers that they are getting come from, you know, different places where they were educated at these kinds of institutions. And so just saying, oh, I had a public school education doesn't mean a goddamn thing. Mm-hmm. You have to look at that zip code. You have to look at, okay, where where is this happening? What kind of resources, what kind of funding are they getting? Um, what drew you from, so you're in comfortable New Jersey, <laughs> and then you go, was it your first teaching opportunity in West Philadelphia? So your first? So I was in school in West Philadelphia. So you were I in volunteered in schools. I tutored, but uh, my first teaching opportunity was on 127th Street. Okay, so you were in school in West Philadelphia. Why there though? Why? I mean, if if you're in if you're in school, being surrounded by public schools that weren't getting the attention and resources that they should have been getting, what was what was it about? What school was it? What was it about that school and the surrounding schools that kind of drew you there? Because you could have stayed in. You probably could have gone to a bunch of different places where maybe it looked and felt like how you grew up. I think, you know, I didn't want to. I think I got to school and it was, you know, my first time being in a city and it was my first time being around people that were different than me. And that like drew me in. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to learn more. I wanted to understand different perspectives. I grew up in a place where everyone looked the same and had the same background and did the same thing. And not only is that boring, it's really isolating and insular. And I felt like it was an opportunity to kind of expand my perspective. And it's, it's hard. I mean, seeing Seeing the, the the poverty and the inequity that you've just never been exposed to and having to kind of shift your mindset yeah. is, it's a challenging process, but I mean, who was I not to lean into that? Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes total sense. I love that. So Tony has talked a little bit about, he's talked in, in various kinds of ways about what Harlem Grown is and what Harlem Grown does. You're the executive director. <laughs> How do you see Harlem Grown? What is Harlem Grown doing? Kind of give us the the vision, the mission, the lay of the land uh, before we get you and Tony interacting again here in a little bit. Sure. It's a great question because Harlem Grown does so many different things for different people. But at our core, you know, we're a youth development organization that serves the Harlem community. We do that through the tool that he talked about, which is our urban farms. We have 12 of them throughout Harlem of varying size and degree. And we call them farms because everything we grow is edible. Uh, we, we produce about three tons of food a year and all of it we give back into the community for free. Amazing. And we do that through farmer's markets, through our community fridge, but we also do through our programming. 
And, you know, we have seven different streams of programming that allow us to target our community in different ways. Um, Tony talked about some of them. You know, we have a summer camp for seven weeks of summer, free. We um, Priority goes to the children who need it the most. And we have school partnerships. We work with schools here in this community. We push into those schools. We take care of their gardens and their farms, and we teach the kids about what we're doing and how to eat healthy and grow and connect with other people. Um, but we do a lot of other things. You know, we have an after school program. We have educational tours on our farms almost every day where we allow other people to come in and see it. We have community events, you know, once a month. Um, we're, we're really trying to meet people where they're at. And I think, you know, that's not a one size fits all model, which is why we don't just do one thing. Yeah. Because yeah. it's not what our community needs. Yeah, I love that. I love that you are, you know, it, it can look on the outside like, hey, hold up, Harlem Grown. Like, <laughs> you're doing too much. Why are you doing that much? But in a, in, a, in a community like this, when you're trying to say we're serving the people of Harlem, there's not one kind of person here. There's not one kind of background. There's not one kind of living situation. So you have to, if you're going to mm -hmm. truly be about Harlem and for Harlem, you do have to say, we're gonna do everything from tours to after school programs to you know letting kids come and plant stuff and you know farm, all of it. You have to sort of be as all encompassing as possible. And, and we have to be iterative. We have to listen yeah. to the needs of our community. I mean, two weeks ago, we launched a new program, which is our mobile teaching kitchen. Um, we bought- oh, that's cool. It's, you know, Tony's going to kill me for calling it this, but it's essentially, it's a food truck yeah. um, that we outfitted as a classroom that is yet another way that we can reach our community because, you know, we have 12 farms, but that's nothing in this large community no. and people don't know about us. So you want to talk right. about- you worked, you worked here for years, never heard about them right. until the job came so up. So this allows us to drive down the street, to go to the people who need us most, to set up a classroom, to take the produce from our farm and to teach people- you know, culturally responsive recipes that have ingredients that we're going to provide for them that they wouldn't be able to access other ways that are also, you know, yes, healthy. That's important. They also taste good. And I yeah. think that's something that, like, we don't focus on enough. Healthy food doesn't have to be bland. It doesn't have to be boring. It shouldn't be just healthy. It can also be delicious. And we can make people want to eat it, want to access it to change their health. So you're involved in a bunch of different schools here, uh, especially in neighborhoods like this, in boroughs like this. We know that they are under-resourced, understaffed, overworked, too much going on. What's the reception, right? Because what you're asking for is for, for schools to partner with you, and there has to be more intentionality. There has to be more education around food and where it's coming from and how we eat. But schools probably, they're looking to cut programs, not add shit to what they're already doing. So what... What kinds of things have you all had to do to make sure those relationships are good? They're thriving. Has there been any pushback? Like, hey, I love what you're doing. We do not have the capacity or time to do this. What's sort of that relationship been with the schools it's, or all of the above? It's such a good point. And look, as a former school administrator, I get it. Yeah. I mean, my job was to figure out our funding, to figure out how to make our educational programming work. And let's be honest, there's never enough time in the day, especially coming off of a pandemic where children were not in the classroom yeah. for a year and a half. Yeah. There aren't enough hours in the day to learn math and how to read. And those are fundamentally important skills. But 
how to be a good human being, how to um, take care of your body and your mind, that is equally as important. And it is our job to make sure that our partners are finding a way to prioritize that. And the way that we do that is, again, by meeting people where they're at and what their needs are and being flexible. If we push into a school and say, this is our one size fits all model, we will fail because every school, even in this community, needs different things. So when we meet with the principal, we don't tell them what we're going to do. We say, what do you need from us? Mm. And we pri we prioritize their needs to come up with a plan that allows us to have the impact that we're looking to have in a way that is going to work for them. Each one of our schools gets a different program. It's intensive and allows for us to have that same impact, but it looks different. One school, it might be an after-school program. That's what they need. One school, it might be Fridays when they have the space, so that's what we do for them. One school, it might be we meet with every grade. One school, it might be cycling through different bands of grades because we have to do what they need to serve them. The work that you all are doing is so, it's so fundamental to all of life and to the proper development development of these children, right? Because you're talking about how overwhelmed everybody is and we're just coming, we're still in a pandemic, but we're, you know, we're inching out of it. And these kids haven't been in the classroom and they're a little behind on certain things. And, but, but this is the most important time to have them thinking about their health. Because if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. It's one of the main reasons that we went vegan and think very thoroughly about what we put into our bodies, my family and I, is if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. Yeah. You so could have all the money in the fucking world, and if you're unhealthy, you're you're not thinking properly, you're not processing well, you're not learning, you're not... T so these kids, they're sitting in the classroom and they're in math class, they're in science class, they're learning how to read, and they're not getting it because they, they've been living on junk food and they have been taking in th their whole, their, their relationship with food is get full, get full. What can I do to get full as quickly as possible and as cheaply as possible? Not, am I putting in the, what is the best kind of fuel? Like the 93 instead of the 85, right? Or the 87, I'm putting in the premium fuel so that my car, my body will be able to learn in the best way possible. And there's this misconception that when kids go to school, our job as educators is to teach them and they have to learn. And our priority is to teach them math or to teach them reading. Yeah. And I think, look, as a former teacher, how can we expect a child to sit through a two hour lesson on math if they're hungry? I mean, that's the craziest thing to me as adults, we don't function if we're not feeling full and satisfied and have proper nutrients. And just because younger children can't articulate those needs in the same way, yeah. we, we try to silo school into this just, you know, core learning time, but these are interconnected issues. They are. Tony, back to you for a second. So you are, you know, this is a nonprofit venture uh, resources, even if you have Edward Norton's and people like that on your team, resources are limited. You're trying to figure out how to be wise with all your resources. Why did you hire the lovely young lady to your right? Like there's probably, there's a lot of viable candidates in this city. What was it about? What was it about, um, Nicole that drew you in and that said, Nicole is the right pick for executive director to help take Harlem grown to the next level? Well, let me just dial that back. Um, 10 years, like I said before, 
you can only get so far on grit, determination, and passion, yeah. right? You're going to get to a certain point. And that's where we were. And at the same time, I was suffering burnout. I mean, this is an all-encompassing work. You don't punch in and out. You live this work, right? So the board recognized that and created a new position for me. And we did an exercise where they took my job and responsibilities and we drew it up. And it turned out to be two jobs. And so we said we're going to hire an executive director. So the funny part is that we um, did a national search and um, got some incredible candidates. And um, we got it down to the final four. And I still find it funny that Nicole, as a finalist, worked four blocks from here. But during this process, you know, I'm I'm not the most seasoned guy, right? This whole thing to me was a blur, right? Sure, yeah. You know, I'm doing what I'm told. I'm marching along, you know, playing the good soldier. Interviews, man, interviews are interviews. You know, it's words on paper. It's what you've done and where you've been and what you've learned. It's not who you are. So we did the final four interviews, and Nicole got to the final two, and I'm getting inundated for everybody, all their input and everything. So I said one day, I said, Nicole, let's go to lunch. Let's not talk about work. Let's just talk about us, your family, your likes and everything. We sat there for over two and a half hours. And on walking her back to work, I knew she was the one. Now I'm hoping that she would accept when we offered it, right? Yeah. But like I tell anyone who listens, she chose me. Yeah. She's taking less money, more work for the work. That's who she is. Now, you watch her here. She can deal with the staff, an irate parent, and be on the ground with a kid within two minutes. That's a gift. People don't, you don't learn that. You can't teach that. That's who you are. And that's what we need here. So all of the accolades on paper, that's good. That doesn't translate to this work, right? And um, so it was a no-brainer. And I've only been working with Nicole for it what, less than four months? It seems like she's been here forever. She's the yin to my yang. She compliments me. So for a founder, for 10 years of just doing whatever I wanted, almost rubber stamping and never having any pushback, I welcome that because she makes me better. I hope you feel honored, you know, by that. I mean, I, 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 I know enough about Tony at this point and the things I've listened in that he wouldn't just that that's not like just bullshitting and like, you know, just putting it out there for the podcast. Like this is the most genuine man you will ever meet. Yeah. And I think <laughs> we are an unlikely duo, but it just works. I mean, our our vision for this organization is in lockstep. We want the same things and we have different skill sets to get us there. And it's, it's what we need right now, especially in this exciting time of growth. Um, we, we want the same things and we are going to achieve them. Amazing. So you've got this, um, in this last, uh, you know, part of our conversation, I could talk to you both for hours. Maybe we'll do another one sometime and get deeper into stuff. But, uh, for the sake of time today, we have uh, this big uh, gala coming up, right? So it's 10 years. And again, it comes at an interesting time, not just for you all, but you know, we're coming out of a pandemic. Um, we're in this 
incredible city where there's so much going on and there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of people are still recovering from, you know, the pandemic. Um, tell us about what's happening and also add in there if there are ways that those listening that don't live, you know, we have listeners all over the world, all kinds of people, you know, and not everything resonates with everyone, right? Like I always tell people, you know, and you, you said it too, Tony, like everybody's got something that keeps them up at night, that bugs them. It's just whether they choose to act on it or not, right? So we've got everybody listening in. A lot of people are interested and concerned about food insecurity and, you know, urban life and children and, you know, uh, plant-based living and all the stuff that we've mentioned here today. So talk about the gala and also how people can get involved. If they don't live around here, are there ways to, for them to get involved in, in what you all are cooking up? Oh, I like the way you passed that to me. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it's kind of a, a blessing and a curse, right? The pandemic was our finest hour um, leading into our 10-year anniversary. So now we plan for this in-person event because it's not – we never did a gala before in 10 years, if you can believe it or not, because I – That's amazing. I push back. Yeah. I will not spend – $100,000 on a party it. and do this work tomorrow. Yep. It's such a disconnect. Yep. So we had friend raisers, we had cocktail hours, things like that, but never a gala. So for 10 years, we're going to have a gala, but it's going to be a celebratory. We want to celebrate everyone that we met along the way in 10 years, starting with Edward and the Finks and the Bertolinis, everybody who helped us monetarily, volunteering everyone because this is not me it's we it's obvious um so it was a celebration but we had the the foresight to plan a dual a hybrid model in person and virtual and unfortunately just last week we had to make the hard decision to go virtual because completely virtual yeah we are Schools opened up a month ago, and already we have over 19 quarantine classrooms, and our kids are under 12, can't be vaccinated. We have some seniors in our, in our family here that support us that would be there. They wouldn't miss it for the world. And to think that you can infect one person is not even an option oh, yeah, for us. Oh, yeah, 100%. So although it was difficult, we did it. So now it's all virtual. And how people want to get involved is learn about us, read about us, the, I get a lot of kicks and side eyes when I say this. Don't do the knee jerk and just cut the check or go yep. on there. Read about us. Make sure this is something you want to support. And if you want to support us, you donate. And you know that 78% of every dollar goes directly to these programs. We have very little overhead. There's no big salaries and big cars and suites and offices. There's none of that. Our work, you're looking at our work. Yeah, we're right sitting here. in it right here. We, we hire from this community. We pay fair wages and offer health care to everyone here. We have $18 an hour is our minimum wage here. Amazing. Dude, how do you change a community? Not by giving them kale. You give them hope and give them purpose. And that's what we're doing here. I love it. I love it. I mean, I, I'm, I was glad to hear you, and, and I, I feel, you know, you know, conflicted because I've been to a few in-person events, you know, safe in-person events. Uh, I still, you know, wear my mask everywhere. I'm, I'm not fearful, but I'm also like, yeah, I have a lot of friends that, you know, were breakthrough cases, right? Fully vaccinated mm -hmm. and got it. And my, two of my kids 
had to be quarantined. Not they didn't get it, but someone in there, you know. So my my wife just this week, you know, finished with three weeks with two more kids at home. You know, she was looking forward to them being off. Right. And then we got the call seven days into the first quarantine. The second kid was, you know, in close proximity. They're both fine and well, thank God. But um, yeah, it's very it's a very troubling time, and we just there's so much uncertainty. And I'm so glad that your uh, your attitude is. Yeah, we don't want to infect even one person in right. this. Like, it's not worth it, right? Nope. We, we, it, it takes people making the hard decisions now. I respect the hell out of anyone making the hard choices, even though I really miss in-person events. Yeah, me too. Um, and we'll get back to it, hopefully. Um, but I'm so, again, like I said, I could keep going, but I want to be respectful of your time. This was so fun. I'm so grateful for it. We're literally sitting I'll take some photos that we can post along with this just for people to have context. Like we're literally sitting in the work and it's beautiful. And there's a certain peace and a certain energy that I feel sitting here amongst these, these other not sentient, but living beings, mm -hmm. right? These, these things that give us so much food and, and sustenance. Um, this is hope. This is the, 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 the picture of hope in a community that is, for all intents and purposes, a food desert where we can find fast fried, cheap food within a stone's throw. Mm -hmm. And if you weren't doing this work, it would be very hard pressed to find fresh food. So I'm, I'm really excited about what you all are doing. I'm in, I want to help. I want to, I will continue to sing your praises mm -hmm. whenever I can. I will bring people to the table to, you know, serve alongside, uh, what you all are doing. I, I, wish you nothing but the best with this gala coming up that you're able to. And I, I love that you were like, we're not doing an in-person gala. I, I have a lot of friends that run nonprofits and I always wince when the next gala is coming up because I know I've, I've produced those galas before and you ended up spending just an obscene amount of money yeah. to barely make that money back. Right. And sure, maybe a few more people found out about it and everybody got their Instagram photos but it had very little meaning in the end. So for you all to like intentionally think through that also gives me more confidence as I send people your way that, you know, though that money isn't going to be spent on, you know, these incredible dinners and this yeah. incredible venue just to again, barely break even. Exactly. Um, Tony and Nicole, thank you so much for joining me on the let's give a damn podcast. Uh, my listeners, our listeners will benefit greatly from this story and from your work. And I truly mean that. I hope we can do it again soon to talk about so many other things that we never even got to today. But this was super fun. Anytime. Thank you. Thank so you. much for having us. Hey, friends, that is it for today. Thank you so much for being here, for spending some time with Tony, Nicole, and me today. Visit harlemgrown.org to learn more about Harlem Grown, and to get involved. I highly recommend you sign up to attend their virtual 10-year gala happening on October 27th. It was going to be hybrid in person and online, and they recently decided because of some surges of COVID cases in our schools here in New York and beyond that they would go 100% virtual. I respect that decision. And now everybody from everywhere can get involved. So go to harlemgrown.org to sign up to attend their virtual 10-year gala happening on October 27. And of course, to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com.
I sincerely thank each and every one of you for showing up today. I'm very grateful. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the team at Sound On Studios made this episode happen. As always, I love them. The music is by our friend Propaganda. I love Prop as well. You can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.